and welcome to The Product Experience, the weekly podcast from Mind the Product, where we talk to the best product people from around the globe and give you insights into the lives of other product businesses. I'm Lily Smith. And I'm Randy Silver. Around the Globe is right. In honor of the MTP Engage Conference in Singapore next week, that's on 26th of March with workshops the day before, we spoke with Nick Ramsey. He's the Chief Product Officer and also the Chief Operating Officer at Singapore-based MoneySmart. I wish we were going to the conference, not only is it in Singapore, but the lineup looks incredible. I know. I guess we're going to have to wait for the videos, but they've got some really great speakers I'm looking forward to. Jen Dante just left Google where she was doing AR and VR stuff. She's now the head of payroll product at Square. John Maida's written great books about leadership and design. Uh, There's Jeff Gotthelf, Amanda Richardson, and a whole lot more. In the meantime, we learned a lot about Singapore and Asia's product scene, building a product culture and more in our chat with Nick. So let's get to it. Yeah, so I took a somewhat convoluted role uh, into product. Uh, my first seven years were spent uh, as a strategy consultant uh, in Europe. So I was specializing primarily around financial services, but I worked actually pretty broadly uh, as it turned out across sort of M&A through to sort of operations and uh, and program management. Um, and like, I think with most uh, consultants, uh, I suspect once you spend enough time working with executive teams, you start to think perhaps I can do it better myself. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so after sort of scooting off to do an MBA, I started something in 2012 um, out here in uh, out here in Singapore. So my goal back then was just to sort of test myself to see whether I could start a business um, more than a direct play into product or even to tech uh, at that point. I was very lucky uh, in hindsight in that I was um, acquired relatively early on by Property Guru, uh, which is the largest sort of property classifieds platform uh, across uh, Southeast Asia, uh, large outside of sort of REA uh, in, in Australia for sure. Um, and that was actually really the start of my product career. So when I was acquired into the business, um, I ended up sat in the product management team uh, as part of that broader product uh, team that was sat there. Uh, and that's where I started sort of really learning about actually uh, taking the skills I built, I think, across, you know, strategy uh, and influencing and program management and actually sort of refining those into a into a product skill set. Uh, I spent about uh, three and a half years uh, at Property Guru, uh, was head of product uh, eventually, uh, working across a range of different um, opportunities. Uh, after about three and a half years, I made a move out and across to MoneySmart, where I am now. So MoneySmart back then, there was about 16 people, had a bunch of, um, had a bunch of potential. It was really poised uh, for growth. I originally joined, uh, as a COO, uh, but very quickly took on the product leadership role as well. Uh, so we've now grown from one market to five markets, from 16 people to 182 uh, people, um, across, uh, across the region. And for those of us who don't know anything about Money Smart, can you just give us a, a brief overview? Yeah, so Money Money Smart is an online financial advisor. Uh, we we plan sort of the financial aggregation space, so across uh, credit cards, loans, uh, insurance products. Uh, we provide advice and help people pick the best product for them. So, so larger comparables would be your Money Supermarket in the UK or your Credit Karma uh, in the US. And so Singapore is kind of like, it, it feels like it's this sort of bubbling thing going on with, with tech in the same way that we get with, with a few other cities as well. Um, but yeah, so I recently saw an article around how Singapore is like one of the best cities to be in, in terms of, of tech. What do you think it is about Singapore that's kind of attracting 
attracting tech businesses? Obviously, it sits uh, in, a, in a very well-regulated environment at the center of one of the fastest growing regions um, in the world, right? So we have Indonesia, Philippines, Malaysia, Vietnam, uh, all of these sort of large uh, growing opportunities right on our doorstep. Uh, and Singapore is, uh, is is an environment where you have uh, strong regulations, a good sort of property ownership rights, et cetera, and, and a very gr- good place uh, to, to, to base yourself to tackle those markets. Uh, on top of that, you're seeing that the government, um, starting about five years ago, made a concerted effort uh, to attract uh, technology uh, to the to the country, uh, specifically fintech in, in in more recent years, but broadly tech uh, as a whole. So they made a lot of effort to make sure that all the regional hubs for you know your Googles and your Facebooks and your Ubers etc. were based out of Singapore. Uh, rather than their uh, their traditional uh, rival of Hong Kong, um, and that really helped build out the ecosystem. I would say in terms of uh, people who work uh, and live in the tech environment uh, in in Singapore. And that must that that kind of growth must have had quite a big impact on the kind of the talent that's in the area. I'm really curious to know, you know, are you having to attract talent outside of Singapore, or is there just enough within Singapore? There is never enough talent, uh, I don't think, anywhere <laughs> <laughs> uh, possibly in the world. Um, but I, I think product is, is, is a particular challenge. Um, I think product management tends to form relatively late uh, in the tech ecosystem. You know, early stage companies, you know, the CEO is the PM uh, in that sense. And you need larger startups, which also means you need later stage investors, et cetera, before you get uh, sort of product, proper product leadership and pro- proper product management uh, starting to evolve and form within the area. Uh, in Southeast Asia, this was relatively rare uh, until recently. I was very lucky uh, that I joined Proptocure, actually. Uh, they were one of the few companies that were sizable enough to have established a, a capable product uh, team uh, at the time. Um, but over the last five years, you've seen a, a lot of growth, actually. So you've got your large homegrown players, I suppose you could say, companies like Lazada, uh, Gojek, and Grab. Uh, as well as sort of more modestly sized platforms like uh, your Redmart and your Carousel and your and your Kluke, who aren't necessarily as large uh, as those players, but they take product management uh, very, very seriously. Um, and what we've seen, I think, over the last three or four years is, is an exponential growth in the uh, number uh, and caliber of product management um, in Southeast Asia, and especially uh, in, in Singapore as a destination. So you face a challenge that uh, a lot of us have faced which is you go into a company, and in your case, even an entire region, that doesn't have a strong product culture. And you came into a company, as you said, where you started off as the COO and took on a product leadership role as well. How do you go about creating a product culture? Culture is essentially behaviors. Uh, and changing behaviors uh, takes time uh, in, in, in any environment, especially in a, in a scenario where it's not well ingrained um, at the start. The core components, right, of, of the product cultures are things around appetite for risk, having a, a you know a test and learn mentality, an iterative approach to the way you achieve things, a, a focus on outcomes over and above outputs, uh, you know, a planning methodology that uh, that focuses around uh, a fixed outcome rather than a fixed input uh, in terms of in terms of budgets. Uh, these things take time to shift. Uh, and they have to be supported by the economics and, and, and the needs of the business uh, itself. So um, all businesses go through different cycles uh, that need different types of focus uh, at, at different times, right? Uh, your larger 
sort of uh, mature stage companies, uh, you know, are typically actually uh, primarily challenged by a brand and distribution problem uh, at that point. You know, they've got product market fit. Uh, they just need to make sure that they're distributing as broadly as possible and that people are picking their product, which is probably not terribly differentiated at that point, um, over and above the, the competitors uh, in that sense. So earlier stage companies that are smaller uh, need a product culture more than later stage companies. And it's typically a little bit easier to, to swing a company across uh, from that perspective. And what kind of activities have you done or um, sort of strategies have you taken with the businesses that you've worked in to, to kind of instill that product culture? You need to tweak the way everything works in order to reflect those those values. So the way the organization plans, for instance, you know, you can't have uh, if everything needs to be nailed down 18 months in advance in order to secure budget, then that does not give you the, 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 the freedom and the flexibility um, that you that you need in that space. And one of the advantages that I've had at MoneySmart is because I, I double hat between the COO and the CPO role, um, I have a little bit more influence in some areas uh, in, in order to, to make these sorts of changes. Um, so as a CPO, with my CPO hat on, for instance, I'm primarily concerned with sort of advocacy, especially around a particular point uh, when it comes to discussions and debates. Uh, but with my COO hat on, I'm actually uh, agnostic as to the outcome. Uh, I'm more focused on are we uh, do are the right people in the room uh, and are we are we making the right decisions with the right sort of data available to us um, and the way we make decisions uh, obviously uh, is driven by the culture that you have uh, within the organization. So in a, in an organization that didn't have this culture before you joined, how do you to walk other people through that? How do you uh, convince them of what good looks like and take them on that journey? This is a question I think that would vary a lot uh, depending <laughs> on the, <laughs> the business that you have. Um, but I think uh, the, the, the general principles uh, I tend to apply, especially when it comes to culture, is that culture is basically what are the mutually reinforceable behaviors that you have within the organization? As in, not what are the behaviors you'd like to see, but what are the actual things that people will actually try and do um, uh, when, they, uh, when they go about their, their roles and what will they mutually reinforce with each other? Um, because if it's you cascading down all the instructions and all the corrections to people's behaviors on a day-to-day basis, um, it's not going to really change. Uh, it's not going to change anything. It's not going to move the needle. It needs to be a bottom-up effort. Uh, and what you, and what you start to do is you start to, uh, you start to introduce slightly changed behaviors in terms of the way people do things. So OKRs is a great, uh, is a great example. It's a, it's a planning methodology that, uh, that is aligned towards ambition and transparency um, and can be used on relatively uh, short cycles, for instance. If you roll that out across an organization you, and you change the way people plan, um, you're going to start to change the way they look at things and start to change the way they, uh, you're going to start to change the behaviors that they have within the organization. So OKRs is one method uh, that we used. Um, we used a lot of different sort of uh, we tried to implement Agile into a, a couple of different areas uh, as well, just or just the mentality, at least, of, of a test and learn culture of, you know, come up with your hypotheses and, and, and start testing how you might go about doing these things rather than uh, Gantt charting your, your next six months of activity uh, uh, through the year. You've obviously done this for many years, so maybe you kind of have it nailed, but <laughs> is, has there been a point at which you've kind of tried something and it just is completely backfired or it hasn't worked at all and it kind of uh yeah you have to kind of go back 
to the, the beginning or yeah i mean i think it's 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 part of i think honestly it's part of the product culture to constantly question what you're doing anyway in that sense so we have a we have a rough rule of thumb where um anything that we think is working now is probably not going to be working in six months time uh, whether it's the way we arrange ourselves, whether it's the way we, ru- we run a process. And um, as we scale very fast as an organization, um, you know, things just stop operating in the way that you thought they were working with previously. So even if you solve the problem now and you put in place the perfect process and everyone's uh, exhibiting the right behaviors and working in the right way, um, you can't rest on your laurels because you're going to have to revisit that entire piece um, six months further down the line. So I think that culture of constantly changing the way we do things and allowing people to, uh, you know, raise their hands and say, this is not working uh, for us uh, anymore. And so good, good example, right? we used to do, um, so one of the things we did quite early on in the company was just, you know, we had a, a daily stand-up for everyone on the team, uh, which was fine when we were 16 people. But I think, you know, I think we carried on trying to do that uh, well into like the, the, the late 30s, maybe even the early 40s. And we were realizing that this company-wide stand-up at the start of every day was was taking you know, 25 minutes, and people were uh, people were losing uh, losing attention. So we started to jazz it up a little bit in terms of making it a little bit more random who would provide the update or different or changing the way that we provide provide the update. Before we realized actually, you know, we should not be doing the stand-up anymore. It doesn't work. Um, so you have to constantly, I think, reassess even the little things uh, that you're doing on a daily basis. Uh, going forwards. So you've gone from uh, over the last two years from one PM to to ten product managers. What other kinds of things have you had to change? What were the the major scaling points for you? Yeah, so the the product uh, and design organization has grown quite quickly. I think um, it's still probably you know product and tech still probably represent less than a third uh, of our of our overall uh, team. So I don't think we're uh, over indexed uh, in, in that space at all. But I think um, shifting the way the company thinks uh was the was the hardest problem right so uh money smart operates up or, or is supported by two parallel adoption curves uh, you have um adoption by the banks and insurance companies of digital as an acquisition channel you know do they look to their call centers um to to find users or do they look to partners like us to uh to to onboard and and, and acquire new users uh, and then the second adoption curve is the it's the consumer, right? So are they going online uh, to compare these products? Are they going online to educate themselves uh, around these opportunities? Um, the consumer adoption curve was never really a problem for us uh, back in the day. Uh, the commercial relationships and the uh, the adoption by the banks and insurance companies was a big problem for a while for Money Smart before I joined. Um, and that actually led to a very, I would say, commercial-centric uh, mindset and culture within the organization where everything essentially revolved around how can we convince these partners um, that we are a viable acquisition channel for them and a, and a good partner for them within the industry. Fast forward a few, fast forward a few years, right? And the, and the environment changed uh, quite rapidly, right? So uh, the partners that we have within the industry now are very willing to work with us, but that traction has obviously attracted a lot of attention. So we have a lot of uh, new competitors in the market now, uh, fund rate funding in the, in the market has, has grown exponentially uh, over the last few years. And, and our primary challenge as an organization right now is, uh, it's not necessarily so much about keeping the, um, uh, our bank and insurance partners, uh, happy. It's about convincing the consumers that we have the best solutions for them, given the problem sets that they have, uh, at the moment. And that is, uh, a black and white, you know, product market fit challenge. It's, 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 it's a, 
solution. You need a product culture uh, in order to be able to tackle effectively. Is it your role within the business to kind of have that helicopter view of spotting when things are not working and and addressing those? Or do you have like someone else within the business who's kind of looking at uh, like continuous improvement? Uh, I would say yes and no. I mean, obviously, we have a um, a very talented executive team and we sort of collectively uh, take on different aspects of running the business and and uh, various processes for sort of coming to decisions uh, in that sense. Uh, with my COO hat on, um, I do um, have an outsized role in terms of measuring our progress in terms of how we're executing uh, for the business. So on top of sort of like the people in HR functions uh, that sit within that scope, uh, the strategy and the program management functions um, also also sit with me. So how are we progressing uh, against our objectives is uh, is a responsibility that I carry certainly uh, within that. Um, now, how do you put structure around a fast-growing uh, organization? You know, I will let you know as soon as I figure it out as well. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think in that sense, there's a, there's, it's, it's a light touch, right? I remember... Um, I spent the first part of my career running, you know, very large program management offices uh, for big programs um, in Europe. Uh, and, you know, PMOs are rightly in that environment, hated by everyone who has to engage with them because it's it's an extra reporting layer, right? It's, it's preventing uh, the teams from being effective in terms of what they want to do and doesn't add value um, uh, to, to, to their lives. I think finding the right balance uh, between um encouraging long, medium and short-term investment in the organization, which is usually the area where people fall over first, right? Like the short-term investments start to uh, start to dominate the planning processes, which means the the, the medium and long-term investments, which, which are going to drive that longer-term growth, um, don't materialize, uh, which encourages further short-term uh, thinking uh, and, and cycles. And um, on top of that, with sort of very lightweight planning processes that allow people to very quickly uh, focusing on what they should be uh, working on and, and communicating out to the rest of the business how they're progressing against that. Um, OKRs have traditionally been a very powerful tool for us, actually, um, in terms of how we've gone about that. But actually, we're starting to layer on additional sort of uh, management information systems and program management program management methodologies on top of that now in order to allow us to stay focused on uh, executing against the plan. There's a lot of tension that goes on as you as you start to grow. The things, as, as you said, the things that work when you're 16 people don't work when you're uh, 16 squads. Uh, how do you minimize that complexity tax and still keep everyone on the same page? Is it as simple as doing some planning and, and OKRs and letting the teams be autonomous? Or is are there other considerations that you've had to put into place? I think the key sort of um, vector uh, that we're exploring at the moment in terms of our thinking around this is what's the difference between sort of what you, I would call growth uh, versus BAE and the growth initiatives or the, those things that are that are going to grow the business and the most most important ones of those are the things that need to take up uh, the, the the most headspace for the executive team uh, and other things that need to be focused on the most from a progress review perspective. And BAE activities should be fairly stabilized uh, by this point, um, uh, other activities that are that are not driving significant growth but are important investments nonetheless uh, require less oversight and, and visibility within that. You, need, you still need a strong sort of management information system uh, and a strong understanding of the uh, of the KPIs of your business um, in order to 
keep an eye on anything else that might go wrong at that point, but where we try to focus our executives' uh, mental energy, and OKRs is actually quite is quite good for this as well, um, is on those you know those twenty percent of activities that represent the eighty percent of growth that's going to be delivered in the next three to nine months. So for the the product managers and the product teams on the ground, does that mean that they're uh, depending on which bucket they fall in? There's essentially a different uh, a different tax on them or a different methodology of how they report, how they work with the executive team. A different level of scrutiny, uh, I would say certainly. Um, some 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 teams are in, I would say, exploration mode so much as in they just you know they're taking some big bets and they're going to see what see what happens. Um, you have to give the teams freedom uh, and, and space to, to take on these big problems and see what they can do. Uh, but you have to also accept that when it comes to a planning and a budgeting and a, a, a scenario, you're not going to put anything in against these teams for, for a period of time. So they, are, they have the, the safety to fail uh, in that sense. And as such, they require a little bit less, less scrutiny as well. You have to check that they're being effective, that they, you know, their strategies are sound and that they're playing to win and that, uh, the way they're running those teams is is correct, but you expect a little bit less from them. Uh, where you have uh, found product market fit and you're you're in a bit more of a scaling mode, this is when you start to to make commitments uh, in terms of what you think you're going to achieve uh, over the course course of the year from a growth perspective. And this is these are the teams that will have the uh, the more frequent uh, pulse checks that will have uh, more executives sit, sitting on their steerco sessions uh, in order to in order to analyze their progress. That's really interesting. And do you find that you have some people who fit the BAU or the kind of the the growth team better than the product market fit team? Just from a kind of personality perspective. I think, yeah, I th- definitely I, I, when, I'm, when I'm hiring, right, I, I have product managers who um, are a, a stronger optimization, I think you would call it. Um, and those that are stronger at exploration um, uh, and discovery uh, in that sense. Uh, exploration discovery, people tend to be less structured in terms of their thinking as well, or in terms of their expression uh, at the very least. Um, the, those people who are much more sort of focused around uh, sort of, uh, optimization and scaling around uh, products that have product market fit uh, are also better suited to the, the increased sort of reporting requirements, I think, that you would see uh, for those sorts of teams. I can appreciate that from my point of view. I think I think what what you see as well over time is a is a constant cycle, right? So you have products that um, start off as uh, in a discovery phase or or as part of an exploration. Uh, they eventually find uh, product market fit. You scale these up um, quite aggressively, and then this is where sort of the commercial and marketing organisations start to play a larger role in terms of distributing uh, this uh, across across markets. And the product team would actually tends to sometimes take more of a backseat uh, at this point and because they then start to go back to the start and think, okay, well, how can we disrupt this thing that we've already created now? Or where, where, where might we take these users that we're now attracting to the platform uh, on a slightly different journey? Uh, so they sort of cy- tend to start to cycle back and make less commitments in terms of what they're going to do with the existing product set and start to focus a little bit more in terms of what, where they'll be, where they're proposing that they'll be investing their time next. You talked a little bit about structure earlier, and one of the things that I know that's come up when you're uh, working with a company to make it more product-centric is there's a tension that comes in between some of the other traditional silos. How do you deal with that? 
I think well, I mean obviously the the executives have to have a have to have a, a good working sort of relationship with each other uh, in this sense. But I think there are different depending on where the company's at, right? It has it has different requirements, and I think different functions tend to have different um, uh, not different cultures necessarily, but different um, aspirations. Perhaps is the uh, is, is the best way to put it. And um, we're all obviously familiar with your typical sort of um, uh, product uh, traps or fallacies around, uh, uh, you know, if I build it, they will come uh, for, for product people, right? They, they tend to believe, they tend to aspire to the, the product or the user experience that is so dramatically better than anything the user has ever experienced before or so powerfully solves uh, an innate need uh, that the product essentially markets itself virally um, uh, across, uh, you know, the known world. In that sense, uh, tech people tend to love to focus on solving the hardest problems uh, rather than the most important ones. But you know, marketing and commercial have their own have their own fallacies as well, right? Your, your marketers will tend to um, dream of the of the big campaign that uh, uh, that essentially sweeps the market and differentiates the product so so dramatically that uh, all brand awareness and loyalty automatically swings uh, to to your set of products. And commercial people tend to to, to Dream of the of the big deal, right? That uh, secures exclusivity and uh, and uh, and locks the competition out uh, uh, from a, a economics perspective, perhaps. And these different aspirations tend to, to focus on different um, uh, different ways of working. For instance, so marketing will tend to what think think in terms of a fixed budget. Isn't you know I have X I have X dollars. Uh, let's see what kind of outcome I can achieve. Uh, whereas product tends to think in terms of a fixed outcome, which is like, I, I want to achieve X. Let's see how quickly I can do that or how long it's going to take me uh, to achieve that, right? So if you have product and marketing sometimes working together um, and you have, say, a, a product being developed in a big brand campaign that needs to go around it, uh, marketing needs certainty about when that's going to be ready so that they can activate their, their, their part of the value chain. And product likes to... Or product and tech tend to think in terms of this fixed uh, fixed outcome perspective, so they have a lot more uncertainty as to when that thing might happen, uh, and they'll 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 commit to keep on keeping on going in this iterative approach uh, until it's achieved. So, given that, where should product report to? I mean, I've seen it report to CEO, to CTO, uh, to CMO, to and you know it can report pretty much anywhere in an organization. Where do you think it's most effective? I come from a school of thought that sees product uh, as a general management discipline. And I think typically uh, in order to be seen as uh, unbiased within an organization, it needs to sit independently. And not say it can't be part of or merged with uh, other functions like tech or or even marketing uh, in a sense, but it tends to skew the perception of the agenda of product um, a little bit, depending if you sort of start to wrap it in. Uh, alongside, uh, alongside other functions in that sense. Um, I think you know if you were a, uh, if you were a uh, a later stage um, mature company, you could even wrap product into marketing. I think actually, if you wanted to. Um, but at this point, you know, product market fit and product leadership are no longer necessarily uh, the driving forces of your organization. At that point, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you have the saying of the the hacker, the hipster, and the hustler. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so like one of them kind of has to take 
or maybe they don't. I was going to say one of them has to take the lead on the product development side, which means that they will be then viewed towards that kind of thought of thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think I think product tends to take the lead on in terms of what we do. Um, tech tends to take the lead in terms of how we'll do it, uh, along with design. The marketing tends to take the lead in terms of what we say. Uh, in that sense, everyone has their own area of leadership and their own area of coordination. Uh, I think in that sense, I uh, I strongly dislike this concept of product managers as the CEO of their of their product. Right? I think. Um, mm. It tends to make people think that they have some sort of command authority when the reality is uh, the reality is they, they have to lead through 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 influence and through um, vision and through communication. And one of the things I learned early in my career actually as a as a consultant is um, you're going into other people's businesses and trying to tell them what to do. Right. Uh, and we used to talk about this skill and we used to call it influencing without authority. So can you walk into somebody else's business, uh, given that they, they know an order of magnitude more than you and convince them to change what they're doing. Um, it's a very hard skill uh, to build out, but I think it's really necessary as a product manager. It's the number one thing I tend to look for um, when I'm hiring is, is influencing skills uh, in that sense. So, so I started off my career as an editor. Uh, and the, the rule line for me is that I worked with writers and editors and designers and developers and, and lots of other people and helped them create something that's greater than the sum of the parts and focused on customer delight. And I feel like I still do pretty much the same thing today. And it is also a bit of talent spotting and putting the right people on the right problem. Um, so like I said, I think I do pretty much the same job. But it sounds like what you're saying is going back to your strategy days there's a very consistent through line. What's the difference between working in strategy and working in product? I mean, I, th I think that there's, there's a, there's a, there's a great deal of sort of difference uh, bet between the two. Um, I think it's sort of the maturity or the way you might use some of the skill sets or, or, or employ them. Right. So, um, you know, as a consultant, you know, I did a lot of strategy work, which is important for product people. I, I spent a lot of time building a vision for what I thought needed to happen uh, building out plans in terms of how to get there and communicating and getting buy-in uh, for those plans um, and then executing some of these plans in a in a you know in, in a rigorous program math management methodology these are all skills that i employ today and i i, I coach into my teams uh, today but the way they are combined is 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 quite quite different uh in in, in that sense i think uh, project management um would probably be closer to how i used to work than than product management uh, in that sense uh, but I like your, I really like your analogy around uh, being an editor. I think uh, the truth is, you know, product management is a general management discipline. Nobody learns it really at school, right? You have marketing, you have tech, you have uh, all sorts of uh, careers that you can start off in, in college. But uh, product management uh, uh, is, 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 is a discipline that people come to through something else. Um, and it's always interesting to see the different flavors that people bring uh, as, as, as part of that. Uh, sort of baggage or history uh, as they step into the product management world. So when you're hiring now, do you do you hire just people with product experience or do you look for a kind of a set of skills and then um, hire around those skills rather than um, specifically product people? Dep obviously, it depends on the level. Uh, the, the, the more senior the role, the more expectation I have around uh, basic product management skill sets. Um, but we take we take people who are from outside the um, 
the not the industry, but from outside the uh, the capability, from outside of product management, um, and we take internal transfers internally uh, within the company as well from different functions. I think so. Design thinking, right, is a, is a, is a, is, a, is a really interesting concept that influences a lot of the way we work, but they're. Uh, emphasis on getting those different perspectives and different thoughts and, and, and ways of working uh, into the room uh, is just as valid for product management as well. Uh, if you can't relate to uh, your stakeholders, if you can't, um, if you if you uh, don't bring something to the table that helps you understand their perspectives, then um, you're going to be a poorer product manager for it. So, how do you build on those skills? Uh, we do a lot of knowledge sharing uh, within within the teams. I mean, I think there are there are certifications and things that I would always ask uh, some of the more junior members of our teams uh, to to go into. Um, but honestly, it's a, it's a lot of coaching and mentoring. I like it when I see uh, people making the same mistakes that I made, and um, because that's how I learned uh, a lot of these things, right? So when uh, when you see some of these common mistakes that might that might start to creep through. In terms of what people are doing, you know, you can step in early enough, obviously, to intervene and stop anything dramatic happening. But it also means that these people are pushing themselves beyond their uh, current capability set uh, and are learning very fast uh, in their environment as well. Um, I think you have to have, given that there is so little formal training in product management, you have to have a, a coaching leadership style um, uh, within the space as well to help people uh, grow uh, within within the within the domain. What's one of the most common problems that you see? Uh, again, one that you probably made yourself. Gosh, so many, <laughs> <laughs> so many mistakes. Um, no, I think I think probably I would go back to this leadership question. A lot of product managers tend to be very passionate about what they're doing, and they they sometimes forget that they don't have control over most of the things necessary for them to execute on that vision. Um, they have to be able to uh, lead. Uh, through through solid communication and through a compelling vision, um, the entire organisation, if necessary, uh, to follow them to 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 follow through on that outcome. A lot of product managers, especially early on, and uh, sometimes in their relationship with tech, right, uh, take a bit of a uh, command and control um, approach to how things are going to be done, and that uh, does not lead to productive uh, relationships or productive outcomes uh, in that sense. How do you coach people to to come to a better attitude, a better a better result? Uh, forcefully, if necessary. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think um, yeah. no, I, I'm, I'm, I, <laughs> I you know it's it's something to something to watch for. I think you have to be, um, I think in any in any sort of coaching and mentoring relationship, right? You have to be proactive and you have to be involved uh, in terms of what people are doing and more importantly how they're going about. Uh, delivering results, right? I, I, I will never, I, I will never excuse um, the way people have done stuff just because they managed to do it. Um, uh, it's never, it's never a good trade-off uh, in that sense. It's interesting. I think the idea of training versus coaching. Um, I think that you know the training can give people an overview of the the basics. And and Randy, you'll know more about this being an mm. actual management trainer <laughs> but the the coaching seems so important as a kind of follow-on from that because it's very hard to put into place some of the product management techniques if you don't have the support within the business that you're working in um, mm. particularly as product management doesn't have um you know the uh that the, the kind of the final say if you like and it is it is kind of 
influence rather than dictation. Um, so yeah, I think the coaching is, is such an important piece. Yeah, from from my perspective as as a trainer, um, the corporate training that works best is when it's part of a larger change management program. Mm. You know, one or two days out of the office, and then going back and everyone doing the same thing they were doing before doesn't do anything. Pick one or two things that you learned. Uh, use it as a, a way to reset the the team as a whole, so that you're using a shared vocabulary and perspective. But then pick one or two things that you're going to concentrate on for a while as a team. Uh, and get those right, and then work on to the next one or two things, and always keep asking the the very basic question: What is it we're trying to fix, and what does good look like, and are we moving towards that? And just as long as you're asking those questions, you're going to do great. If you don't, and you just treat it as a an obligatory activity, you're not going to get that much out of it. I would say as well, from the perspective of a sort of a nascent ecosystem, having that critical mass of people around you mm. um, in order to learn from is, is really important as well. You see a lot of, especially in early stage startups, you see a lot of sort of lonely product managers uh, who are sort of sat there on their own uh, working with maybe sort of eight to 10 uh, tech people. And it's hard for these people to, to, to learn in an environment where they have no one to look for. And um, so definitely, I think if you're starting out early in your career in product management, joining a larger startup, um, working with a team uh, that you that you look up to uh, and respect is uh, is, um, uh, is is a must. Uh, or alternatively, uh, product product tank right is a is a great way to meet a lot of people. Product tank. Other meetups are available. Listening to podcasts like this and some other really great ones also really helps. Uh, yeah, anything you can do to improve your own practice and and find other people who share the same perspective and learn lessons from them is always fantastic. Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. I've I've been the the lonely product manager in many a startup, so <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking of. And it, you know, I didn't know if I was doing everything well or right, or um, you know, if I was missing some really good tricks uh, until I then started um, working more with other product people. And again, not within businesses, but um, uh, you, you know, networking and. Um, going to events and stuff so it's a really good way to kind of bridge that gap if you if you don't have the opportunity to work with a much bigger product team nick i know you've got to run soon i've got one last question for you if that's okay um, sure so you started off at money smart as the coo you took on the cpo hat as well both of those in many other in many companies are full-time jobs in and of themselves would you hire a separate cpo now <laughs> Uh, let me sorry. Uh, let me pause and think about that for a second. Um, <laughs> I think I think as a you know as as, a, as an executive, um, you know, product uh, is where my heart will probably always be. Uh, in that sense, I will probably I, I will wear this. Uh, you know, if you if you cut me open, I will be I will bleed product, and I hope to take that forward in in, in my career, wh- whichever seat uh, I sit in or with whatever hat that I that I wear. And um, I think the the the, the combined role. Is a stretch, um, for sure, uh, and I will probably need to backfill one of the roles. And um, the biggest problem actually is just the the type of focus uh, between the two is a little bit different. Um, the product, you're looking quite far into the future. It's about vision. It's about leadership. Uh, the COO role is actually it's more focused around execution. Uh, it's more focused about how we go about doing things and are we doing it? Uh, are we operating effectively as an organisation? They have different, very different perspectives and context switching between the two is, is definitely a, a challenge. That was great, Nick. I mean, it's a very diplomatic answer, but the- <laughs>
So Lily, it sounds like Singapore is a great place to go if you're a good PM looking for a new challenge. Next week, we have Kai Haley. She's the lead of design relations at Google, but also one of the key people at their Design Sprint Academy. And if you're listening to the end of the podcast, I have no doubt you're good at what you do. (laughs) And it wouldn't be the end of the podcast if I didn't remind you to rate, review and tell your friends. Unless this podcast is your secret superpower, then you can keep it to yourself. We'd love to know what you think. Please tweet us at mtppod. The product experience is part of the Mind the Product Network. Check out your local product tank today. Find it at mindtheproduct.com slash product tank. And here's global product tank manager, Mark Abraham, to tell us more about what product tank is. Product tank is a global community of meetups in over 155 cities across the world, driven by and for product managers whether you have a group discussion or you're listening to speakers, the whole idea is to create a safe environment for product people to come together and to share their learnings and tips. Have you seen a great talk? Nominate a future guest on the podcast channel on the Mind the Product Slack. You can find that at mindtheproduct.slack.com. If you want to learn more about product management, take a look at mindtheproduct.com training to see what courses are on near you. Emily Tate is our executive producer. Our theme music comes from the German band POW, featuring Arnie Kittler of Product Tank Hamburg. And that's goodbye from Randy and Lily. See you next time. Bye.